Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the Can You Hear Me podcast. I'm Eileen Rochford, CEO of the marketing and strategy firm, The Harbinger Group. And I'm Rob Johnson, president of Rob Johnson Communications. Here at Can You Hear Me, we enjoy discussing some of the most pressing and timely communications issues of the day. And today is no different. That's right. As Women's History Month is coming to an end, we want to explore a very important topic why a diversity of voices, specifically women's voices, are important when it comes to discourse in the public sector. And we are very fortunate to have two women whose voices are being heard in the political arena today. Six-term 11th District Illinois State Representative Ann Williams is here. She's a leader in the House on environmental issues and much, much more. Ann's legislative priorities include supporting our neighborhood schools, protecting critical human services, preventing gun violence, and restoring physical stability to Illinois. She's a strong and unwavering advocate of reproductive rights and was a leader in bringing marriage equality to Illinois. Welcome, Anne. Great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. And our second guest, Eileen Dordek, is a candidate for Illinois State Representative in the 13th District. Eileen is a mental health professional who has spent her career advocating on behalf of women, families, and the LGBTQ community, and is committed to improving access to mental health services and social services for all. Since 2009, she's been actively involved in Personal PAC Illinois, an organization committed to electing pro-choice officials. She's also a board member of Equality Illinois, an organization that fights for the rights of the LGBTQ community. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. We really do. We really appreciate both of you spending some time with us here on the podcast. And Representative Williams, let's start with you. As Eileen R. there, we have an Eileen R. and an Eileen D. today on our podcast, which is uh, the first time that's happened. Um, (laughs) You are in your sixth term in the Illinois House. What changes have you seen during that time about not only how your voice and influence have evolved, but how that has changed for women in public service in general? Because that's a lot of terms. It really is, although I don't count the rounder years, so we can just lap four years. <laughs> <laughs> okay, five times. <laughs> um, you know what? It's, it's interesting. So I've been in and around the political arena since I was in my 20s, which was a while ago. And the way women's voices have uh, been heard has really evolved in that period of time. So, of course, in the 10 years in the GA, but even before that, it used to be that women kind of were um, the extra voices in the room. Everything was dominated by the male voices. You throw a woman or two here and there. Um, But we had some real strong leaders that uh, helped to make that look a lot different. Even around the rail, which is what we call the lobbyists that hang out outside the chambers, it used to be the women's voices were limited to traditionally women type of issues. So uh, human services stuff, issues related to kids, families, which of course is important. And that's where a lot of important changes made. But now you see the women working and advocating uh, in all sectors. On the floor of the house, you see women pushing issues related to some of the uh, more high profile items, gaming even. This last couple terms, we've seen some women entering into the gaming space, which is traditionally kind of a, a male based area utilities. We're still working to get our voices as as loud as they should be on the utility space, but we had a big step forward this year with the clean uh, or 
Climate and Equitable Jobs Act. So I think the type of issues we're working on has uh, widened in scope. And uh, the more that women's voices we hear, the more diversity we have among those women, I think we're going to hear a broader spectrum and that will help move us forward on all issues. Because what we're talking about here is not only having a place at the table, but having your voice heard and having your recommendations and what you suggest actually thoughtfully um, considered and perhaps enacted or you know put on a bill for people to vote up or down on, right? Absolutely. I still think we have work to do to make sure that women are running the table in a lot of these spaces. I know that's probably the case in the private sector as well, but we have a ways to go to make that happen here, but we are uh, louder and more visible than ever before. And I'm curious, Anne, uh, noting all of that change in kind of, we'll say, representation of women um, in the political arena in Illinois, in the different roles, what, what's been the result of that? Like what observations might you have about, oh, that's made the way uh, we're talking to each other or how uh, we come to agreements? I don't know. How, how, what's changed? I think women tend to be more collaborative in general. I don't want to say none of the men I work with aren't because they certainly are. But uh, we are very comfortable in a space of collaboration. We don't always need to see our voices uh, at the top of the you know conversation or, or have our names at the fir- you know at the front of the page. But I think women are comfortable sitting back and working with other women and letting the issues lead rather than the personalities lead. So that's something I've seen some of my uh, female counterparts really excel at pushing an issue, not needing to take the spotlight, and really just doing the work to getting it done. Ah, those are great observations. Thank you, and very encouraging to hear. Of course. Um, let's ask Eileen G a question. How's that sound? <laughs> Great. Thanks. Awesome. So Eileen, you have a master's of social work and you've made a difference in the lives of so many people in the North side community where I also live. Um, and women's rights are one of the key tenants of your platform. And thank you for that. Of course, super appreciate, um, all that you're doing have done. Um, what I really want to hear about is so uh, recognizing your passion, um, about the need to elevate female voices in government and social institutions. It, it's clear. Um, tell us why that's so important to you. And if you're elected, um, what do you hope to do to make sure that women are well represented uh, in politics and just um, in, in all the spaces where we need to hear their voices more? Thanks. Thank you for asking. Um, you know, kind of building off of what Anne said, what I've seen as a public sit- or a citizen, not involved in elected office myself, I am running now. And um, but I've always paid a lot of attention to what goes on in the government level. And um, what I see is that they're very often issues that if you do not have some aspect of engagement in that issue or perspective, you don't know it's an issue. So a couple of bills that are some of my favorite, um, one at the city, one at the state that are really good examples of this. Unless you've had this experience, you might not even know it was an issue. So one is the hands off pants on ordinance that was passed a few years ago in Chicago. And that was to give um, hotel workers panic buttons, because it's such a private thing that happens. Hotel workers go into rooms and unfortunately for decades, forever have been harassed 
by people in hotels. It's something that's really quiet. And until it came up as an issue, and, and very often the women who are cleaning the rooms are, and they're usually women, and they're usually, they're often people who might be immigrants or they might be um, women who come from communities that have been underserved. And so they're very vulnerable and maybe at risk of, you know, or concerned about losing their job if they complain, but they were being sexually harassed. And so by having the hands off pants on, also one of the greatest names of the ordinance ever. Um, that, you know, it brought the attention to this issue of sexual harassment. It, and it gave a remedy, which is now they all carry panic buttons. So they don't have to, you know, go to somebody who has more authority, go to somebody who's their boss to complain about uh, somebody who clearly has a lot more power than them. They can just press that panic button and get help. So to me, that's a perfect example of, you, you know, you have to be somebody maybe who's had sexual harassment to understand or even think through that, that law. Another one that I think is really amazing um, was the no uh, job salary history bill that was passed a few years ago. And what was so important about that is we know that women are paid um, less than men and actually women's payday or equal payday is coming up on March 15th. It's when um, white women have to work to March 15th to get paid as much as men. And actually Asian American women have to work till May 3rd. Black women have to work till September 21st and Latinx women have to work till December 8th to have equal pay of what a white man gets last year, right? Um, and so the no salary history bill enabled people who were probably paid um, less because of their gender, because of their race. And they were, um, by saying, not having to say what your salary history was, you can get paid for the job that you're being hired to do. So those are the kind of things that I think it's really essential. Like if you are a privileged, powerful person, which is often white men in our society, that's just a fact, you don't see all of those elements. And that no salary history bill is something that really helped a wide swath of people who haven't had privilege in our society for you know, a long time. And this is a way to kind of even things out. So those are the things that I really, why I think it's so important to have women in there, people with lots of different life experiences, nothing personal. And there are a lot of, you know, lawyers in the general assembly and there are good reasons for that, but it's also um, good to have people with different kinds of work backgrounds and having women, you get more teachers. Um, there was just a Senator recently elected who's, who's in education. I'm a social worker. I think that, so I want to go and, and work on on um, mental health care um, rights issues. And I'm also actually really excited about affordable housing, which is another area that's not necessarily a women's issue. It's everybody's issue. I'm fascinated to know always when I hear about people talking about running for office or people who are in office. So that applies to both of you. And you've made some great points here, Eileen. And I want to ask you, um, Eileen, about why you want to, you, you've obviously given us a, a good idea of some of the things you were passionate about, but how do you go from, man, I'm really passionate about that to, I think I'm, I want to run for state elected office and really make a difference. How does that happen? I have been very fortunate to be friends with Ann Williams, who has been um, a legislator for many years. And I've watched the impact she's made in our state by you know, being the sponsor of CJA, the Climate and Energy Jobs Act, and other, um, other bills that she's passed, along with a lot of other um, people who've, who've really made impact at the state level. And actually in the last 
three years um, with this current governor, there's been a lot of um, progress made in a lot of different areas as far as like, um, you know, our, our economy, the, the, the way the government functions um, is, is, has been really functional and they've gotten a lot of good stuff done. So I've seen that I've been participating in that through my work with personal PAC, which is a pro-choice political action committee. And we support, I've worked on supporting a lot of other candidates. I also have been very involved in the 47th Ward Democrats where I knock doors. I'm a precinct captain and I educate my neighbors because I think that the best democracy is one where everybody participates, where everybody is knowledgeable, where they're informed, where they can express their opinion, where they have accountability and accessibility. That's another thing. And and actually all the elected officials in this area um, have really been great about making themselves accessible. Being, you know, if you need to talk to your state legislature or your senator, it is really easy to access them. So I decided um, when our current state, my current state rep, Greg Harris, decided not to run for re-election. Um, he has been a champion for LGBTQ rights. He was the um, lead sponsor for marriage equality, reproductive freedom, and um, social services, mental health care, Medicaid coverage. And so I thought, you know, those are things that I really care passionately about. I'm going to step up to run. That's all fantastic. So the person, the other, the other person, the uh, the elected official on this program is the one that that motivated you to do that. That's that's terrific. Representative Williams, let's get back to you. You just talked a couple of minutes ago about how the influence of women has increased in the state house during your years. How do you think that additional influence has positively impacted policy here in Illinois? There's not so many men making decisions. There are women that are voting. There are women that are leading the way, even as you said, they don't maybe have their names at the top of every bill, but how has that impact um, made Illinois a better place because there are more women that are weighing in on some of these very important issues? Well, thanks for that question. I think Eileen hit the nail on the head when she mentioned the sorts of issues that we have considered uh, in recent years being attributable to people's personal experiences as women. Uh, a space that Eileen has been and still continues to be very active in is reproductive health care, of course, through her work at Personal PAC. And um, at the time, we worked on a couple of bills uh, pertaining to healthcare and reproductive healthcare specifically. Um, we didn't realize quite how bad I think it was going to be nationwide. We passed a bill, uh, Senate Bill, House Bill 40, which provided, eliminated the Hyde Act Amendment and provided that women of all income levels could access abortion. And then recently, the Reproductive Health Act, which really brought Illinois law up to speed in terms of access to reproductive health care, removing a lot of the antiquated items that were on the books subject to repeal if Roe versus Wade uh, were not to be on the books. So that Bill, I am confident, would not have passed without the hard work of the women in the legislature and, of course, the women advocates outside that space, including Eileen. It's an issue that is so visceral and important to women, especially not that we didn't have a lot of amazing uh, male allies working with us, but the idea that we were looking at uh, state after state uh, putting incredibly restrictive and disturbing uh, restrictions on the ability to access safe and legal abortions was a real motivator for me personally. And I worked really hard, even uh, throughout everything else that was going on in the legislative session to make that happen. And I've 
been very honored to take a lot of really significant votes. At the top of the list, of course, is the vote for marriage equality, which felt special. When I pushed that button, it felt like I, I really made a difference in people's lives. And the next day, we're like, it seems so obvious. Why hasn't this always been the case? But the other bill that I felt most uh, impactful when I pushed that button was the Reproductive Health Act. And now, as we see the Handmaid's Tale-esque laws being proposed throughout the country, I, I really uh, have to admire the foresight of Eileen and the other advocates that push that bill. Because in Missouri, there's a bill pending right now that would uh, allow you to civilly sue someone who assisted a woman crossing state lines to get abortions. There's another bill I thought I saw. It almost seemed like the very sick, sad version of the onion, but a bill providing for death penalty for women who sought abortions. It's, it's getting absolutely nuts. And Thank God, thanks to women like Eileen, thanks to my colleagues in the GA, uh, we were able to make sure that Illinois is a safe space for women to come. We welcome them here. We will do anything we can to help them come here to access this most basic service. I hope can you I don't mind if I just, oh, oh please, Eileen, interject. I'll, I'll okay. save my question. I was just going to just add one more thing to what Anne was saying. We're talking today about women, but I think it's also really important to talk about um other intersections. And for example, in the, um, in the floor speeches around the Reproductive Health Act, what was extremely powerful was the coalition of the Latino caucus, the Black caucus, um, all the you know Asian American um, representatives who were all fighting for this issue that affects all people who can get pregnant. And what was so powerful, I remember speeches from Representative Maurice West, who's a pastor, um, an African-American pastor, who spoke about just the importance of making choices about your body. And Senator Toya Hutchinson at the time talking about bodily autonomy and, and really highlighting those intersections that were fighting for people's um, rights to, it. it's getting complicated a little now, but, um, but, but how the government treats bodies. And, and that intersection of all those people's experience was part of what um, passed it over the line. So that's a great observation. Since we talk about communication here, I think that's a really cool uh, insight that you, you just raised, Eileen. I just wanted to pause and just take the opportunity for both of you um, to give some guidance um, on what women and people who are interested in making sure that reproductive rights are protected here in Illinois and you know beyond, but really we're only mostly in control of what happens here. What should we all be doing? Because I, you know, I remember Eileen, we were at an event together that we kind of put together. This is years ago where we were talking about this very issue and, and uh, the day coming when the threat would be so real to um, you know, the, the repeal of the right to have an abortion and I don't want us to leave this conversation without asking you to talk about what can we be all be doing now um, and not taking you know, what we have here in Illinois for granted and what should we do? Um, I'll start and, and I'm sure you'll have something to add. One of the things that I am concerned and part of the reason why I'm running for office is I'm worried about complacency because there is this idea that we're okay in Illinois. Um, I'm making air quotes. Um, we're okay in Illinois, like because we've we've passed bills to create more access over the past several years at times when, you know, these other states are pulling back access. That said, 
there are going to be resources available to come after us in Illinois from the antis when Roe v. Wade is overturned or as a lot of these laws continue to be able to stand, regardless of whether Roe v. Wade is overturned, because the Supreme Court is allowing the Texas ban to stand. Um, so what that means is there will be more resources. They're not going to have to fight as hard in you know 26 states across the country to make abortion illegal because it will be illegal. So they are going to be able to bring the resources here. I feel like it's really important to keep it in people's minds and to keep moving the ball forward. So we can't stop. We need to then take the next step. So maybe the next step would be about um, having access for the abortion pill at pharmacies, which is, is a law in California and in other states, but it's not here. So there are ways that we can keep increasing access and keep this issue moving forward. Because my fear is once we stop going forward, if you're standing still, you start playing defense and you've already gotten behind. So that's my opinion is we need to just keep, you know, there are things at the edges that we can continue to do to, to make this easier, make it more accessible for reproductive health care for all people in Illinois. And I would just add that we need to ensure that we don't just elect Democrats. Uh, we just don't elect pro-choice Democrats, but we elect unwavering, 100% unequivocal uh, take it as far as you need to go to make sure that abortion stays safe and legal in Illinois. Eileen has worked on enough, um, along with me, enough uh, reproductive health care bills to know we're always fighting with the last for to get those last four or five votes. We don't want to make every vote a fight. And with the possible Republican wave coming this way, we want to make sure that the people we elect are 100 percent committed. And organizations like Personal PAC, Planned Parenthood, ACLU have gone a long way to make sure we we make it a good thing. We want uh potential legislature want candidates to understand that being pro-choice, being really pro-choice, 100% pro-choice, because it's it's kind of a black and white issue, is critical for you to be successful. And I see, I think the work that, that they've done all these years has really paid off, uh, but it's something we have to keep fighting for. And uh, that means money, resources, energy, walking precincts, making phone calls, all of the above. I just want to say quickly that as uh, someone in his previous life covered politics uh, very closely, that and to see men always weighing in on this issue as their issue, I am far more comfortable now. And I'm not making a political statement. I'm making a statement about how women are making an impact on this issue, because I always said, well, where are the women? Why aren't the women uh, making decisions? You know, why, why aren't they, they part? Why, why weren't they part of the discussion? These are you know earlier days. And now you are part of the discussion, as you should be. And it's and it's so vital that that needs to happen. So I just wanted to say I'm comfortable that leaders like you all are weighing in on something that you're passionate about that's so important, um, not only to women, but to this entire country. It's, it's funny, just one little thought. I have a clipping, a newspaper clipping from years ago. This was one of the George Bushes was president and he was signing some anti-choice measure or something into law. And it was a picture of him gleefully signing. And now he seems great, by the way, but relatively to the last guy, but he was signing something and around him were all a bunch of white men kind of nodding in approval. And that picture just really stuck with me. And it is nice <laughs> that we've evolved away from that, but we always have to stay vigilant as Eileen mentioned. So yeah. still need to find that clipping. I don't know where it is, but it's a good reminder. Yeah, there's a lot of pictures like that on various uh, pieces of legislation. Yeah, <laughs> lots the kind of, of thing them. that makes my blood boil. Yeah. Um, well, thank you both. Those are really good um, pieces of guidance, uh, food for thought. 
Eileen, your, your point about complacency. Yeah. That's the thing that scares me the most too about everything, honestly. Um, not just this issue, which is a very important one, but many others that they, we tend as human beings to really look out for ourselves and kind of feel like, okay, we're okay. So I don't need to be worried about that. But the, uh, I always tell myself there is no comfort in comfort. There just isn't. And, you know, once you're, when you're comfortable, you stop growing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So thanks for bringing that up. That's a really important point too. Um, Rob, I think it's a good time for us to transition to talking about uh, the environment because I really want to hear Anne uh, t- tell us about the major piece of legislation that passed in September. Indeed, I think this is yeah, absolutely. And you know, we've been talking about a lot of key issues here, and I knew we were going to get to the environment. But Representative Williams, you know, knowing that this major piece of legislation, um, you know, is is right before us now. Um, as someone who is passionate about the environment, how, as a woman and as a legislator, has your voice impacted this issue uh, in the House of Representatives, especially for something as groundbreaking as this? Well, thank you for bringing up one of my favorite topics to talk about for the past several years. <laughs> uh, you know, it's so funny. I was so tired of talking about the bill, but when it finally passed, all we did was talk about the bill. So it, it's it's still so uh, exciting to think about. That is an issue that so many of us have worked on for many, many years prior to passage. It was first introduced, I think, in 2019, but prior to that, uh, the environmental advocates had been having conversations throughout the state to really get a sense of what different communities wanted in terms of their clean energy future. So rather than you know a utility deal being cut in the back rooms of uh, conference rooms, which did actually happen, um, this was actually taking it out to the communities. And one thing that we heard consistently was jobs, equitable jobs. The other piece we heard was climate. Climate, climate crisis, uh, climate change is on everyone's mind. And it's an issue that we can't move forward on energy. We can't move forward on utilities without talking about it. So we worked uh, thanks to amazing work by the advocacy organizations. We had such a great coalition, very many of them women-led, very many of them led by people of color, faith-based organizations, Uh, business organizations, solar companies, wind companies. Um, We had our Illinois Environmental Council, which is kind of a grassroots organization that encompasses many other groups like Sierra Club, things you've worked with or heard of many times. And the result was uh, being, I would say in this case, the environmental voices were just as relevant at the table as the business interests and the utility interests. And that was not how it had ever been before. Part of it was the change in leadership that we saw in the Illinois House that made a big difference in the focus. We had a uh, negotiating team uh, in which several women, including myself, were participants. And the thing that uh, the women really pushed for was to ensure that the end product was a climate bill, first and foremost, not just a utility bill. And that seems so obvious, right? I mean, but 
when you're in Springfield in a conference room and you have a lot of different voices, some of who represent interests relating to coal, some of whom are organized labor, also a very important voice, you have to consider the big picture. And so we had to really, really push to make sure we ended up with a climate bill. I have to give credit to our governor, J.B. Pritzker, insisted and brought the power of his office behind that a goal to make the final product a climate bill. And we, we got it there. It's pretty exciting as a resident of the state to, to see that uh, piece of legislation get enacted. I have to say, I, um, just personally, it's a really important issue for me and for my family too. So, I mean, I was really grateful that the legislature made it happen, even though at times it felt like it wasn't going to, you know, based on the reporting. But yeah, I've, you know, we got an electric car, you know, in 2019, and that was kind of even, it's funny to think about how back then that felt like still kind of, um, I don't know, on the edge in some way, which is, which is so silly. And now when you look at gas prices where they are right now, doesn't it, uh, it feel like that's, it's a really good thing that Illinois put those incentives in place. And things are, you know, on all these different levels, the solar, wind, because we kind of need to shift uh, all that. We've always known we need to shift that dependency. But right now in particular, because of just gas alone, um, and that it's a fascinating topic for me. Like what, what are you guys, uh, what's been flying through your minds seeing these soaring gas prices? Well, uh, I- <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, that's something that has to kind of be a thread through every conversation, the inflationary piece, small business recovery, where we are economically. And while we don't set broad scale economic policy on the state level, we certainly can impact it. But on the environmental front, I just want to make an observation that kind of ties into what you're saying. We start when I first ran in 2010, I was first elected in 2011. I heard a lot about environmental issues, clean air, clean water, pollution, lead, other issues that people were talking about in the community. But I never heard the term environmental justice. We weren't talking much about the climate crisis then, not like we are now. So it's been really fascinating to see the conversation and the issue evolve. EVs were quite edgy in 2019, but now if you look, there are more cars on the on the road, every manufacturer is going that direction. We're looking at developing the infrastructure needed to support a big increase in EVs. So it's amazing. And with Eileen coming now and, and on the campaign trail now, she's probably hearing about environmental issues in a whole different way. I think our big initiatives this year are in the environmental justice space, ensuring that communities that are traditionally underserved and impacted more by uh, pollution are able to, uh, before an entity that might be polluting is located in their community, able to look at the big picture, how much have they been impacted in the past, what their future looks like. And that's a conversation we never used to have even a few years ago. So it's a rapidly evolving space. Sure, Eileen has noticed that. Yeah, absolutely. And, And isn't there a bill for that very purpose? Um, did that pass yet or is it in discussion? It's pending. And again, environmental justice is not a term that was used when I first ran. So it's been exciting and important to see. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about with the gas prices, Eileen, is that, you know, we know that that's a regressive tax. It does affect people who are under-resourced more than it affects rich people because rich people can just go and pay. Um, and And likewise, with the evolving to like, 
electric vehicles, it's going to be really important to make sure there's some equity in that. And I know the um, Clean the Climate Energy Jobs Act it had elements of that where it can be um, so everybody can have access to these ways of um, having cleaner energy and having more renewable and cheaper energy. I want to jump in as a small business owner because I was stunned when I learned that if I bought a gas guzzler over 6,000 pounds, I would get a tremendous tax break. And I remember asking the dealer, like, and I know that there's already incentives for electric uh, vehicle owners as well, but I thought if we're really heading down this path, and this is before gas prices got ridiculous, you could just see this is the wave of the future. And Eileen R. and I were just at the auto show a month, a couple months ago uh, with one of our clients and you, you see EVs everywhere. But the whole package needs to be EVs need to be and, and cars are in high demand anyway, but EVs need to be available and there need to be obvious incentives to give people to say you really need to consider that. And then there needs to be I think the technology probably needs to improve as well, because as somebody who travels a lot to watch my son play hockey, you know, to say Michigan. You know, there's not a lot of opportunities. If I drove my electric car to Michigan, I'm sure I could find a place to charge, but there's just not a lot of infrastructure to your point, Representative Williams. So it needs to be all these things. I'm fascinated by it. And Eileen R., who is a pioneer, uh, having gotten an EV in 2019, there's a lot of people, I think, that want to do this, that see it. And now they're really seeing it because of the outrageous gas prices and the inability to sort of blunt them. Um, that's only part of the piece, but also the environmental, you know, seeing, looking down the road a little bit environmentally and you see that's the wave of the future. So I think there's a lot of people who would love to jump in on that, but for various reasons, can't go all in like me. I would love to go all in. You raised, you both did the, the concept of environmental justice and then access and, and equity. Eileen, that's also fascinating to me because, you know, I've, I've always looked at the prices of electric cars and so many of them, they're expensive. You know, they're not like you can just get them like you can, you know, or you could get, you know, a $25,000, $27,000 tiny car, you know, to suit your needs. Um, so that's, that's a bummer too. Um, so other, lots of things that need to be addressed there. But um, Illinois is part of a coalition right? And of five states in the Midwest working to improve the infrastructure to access to charging. Is, isn't that, is that true? I'm not exactly sure what coalition you're referring to, but probably. Um, I know that the infrastructure, um, the governor did a lot of work even as a follow-up to the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act to do some work on the um, development of infrastructure and the affordability for electric vehicles. So that probably was probably what you're referring to or maybe what you're referring to. But yeah, I mean, it's something that uh, the companies are starting to see opportunities. We're looking as a state to provide support for that. I know um, my lease is almost up. I don't have the ability though to charge because I live in a condo and don't have the infrastructure, but we're considering a bill right now in Springfield that would provide for new construction to produce the uh, electric current and the, and the apparatus so that you could install such a charging station. I think that's really exciting because a lot of people don't have the ability to do it in their own homes now. And that's a way of making it more equitable and accessible to all. And in the city of Chicago, they already have that for multi-unit new construction of a certain size. There, the, the new code is that you have to provide you know, the, the uh, wiring capability to have you know, X number of chargers on site. So in the city of Chicago, 
that's kind of coming online, which is encouraging as well. People should know about that. And I jump in for a second. I think as we're um, talking about all these issues, what's so interesting to me is thinking about like, again, all the intersections and that that's another reason why I'm excited to, you know, I hope to be able to be a legislator is because, you know, when you're talking about equity and you start talking about transportation, then you have to think about housing, accessibility, public transportation. Um, is it clean? Is it safe? Is, is, is it accessible for people? The old model of, the um, having a hub and spoke system is really not as relevant as it used to be, particularly after the pandemic. So, you know, as a social worker, I always think about like, what are the impacts of every aspect of people's lives and how they create stress, how they um, create happiness and joy. And that's why I think it's really exciting to think about legislation and how you have to think of a lot of different issues and every issue then brings in something else. And if Ultimately, we want equity. We want all people to have access to um, the things they need for a um, healthy, happy, safe life. You have to look at a lot of different um it really brings you to the roads and the housing and the construction construction and transportation rights, all, all of that stuff that integrates together. And again, having different voices with different life experiences and different professions coming to the state to legislate, you're going to get um, more creativity and you're going to actually help more people. Oh, great point. That it's that holistic, uh, thinking that you're describing, Aileen, I think even today is so much more critical even than it was, you know, 10 years ago. Um, so thank you for bringing that up. Uh, very thought provoking is, you know, we all look at who we're going to vote for, you know, do people think that way? Hmm. Um, here on our show, we often talk about how communications really can change everything for better and for worse. And I'd love to hear both of you talk about communications challenges you've encountered in your various roles. And I'm not just talking about, um, you know, public sector, just all the roles that you've had in your lives, um, particular examples of communications challenges that you may have faced really being a woman in, in your industry. And I know Eileen, you come from more of a female, um, majority, uh, uh, area of work being in mental health and, and you've pretty much your whole life been in sectors where it was predominantly male, it sounds like, from what I've read and what you've said. Um, but nonetheless, I think you both have very likely encountered challenges like this that you know, really were um, largely due to the fact that you're women. Just would love to talk about that since communications is a huge part of what um, we focus on here on the show. Yeah, there's an, I was just recalling uh, a conversation I had with uh, a colleague of mine, a black colleague of mine. We were engaged in a negotiation on an item and there were several people in the room and we both walked out, kind of shook our heads. It was being led by two men, um, experienced men, white men that had done a lot of work in the space uh, that we were talking about. And we just walked out and kind of felt like God, it was kind of a tense negotiation and we felt that people fell into almost stereotypical roles. So uh, with the women, I'll just stick with that. We agreed that the women felt, or I felt, and I noticed that it seemed like we were fighting to be heard. And, and uh, you know, we had some other observations about the dynamics in the room. And I just, we went through this exercise. Well, what if I was in charge or what if you were in charge of the negotiation? 
would the guys be fighting to be heard or would it be different? And so um, those interpersonal dynamics that play out, uh, you know, when you're going out with friends, when you're in any sort of work situations, play out really in a negotiating room in the General Assembly. And it was just kind of fun to toy with the idea of what it would be like if the roles were reversed. And what if we did shake up things. And I think we're getting there, but for now we, you know, sometimes still do find ourselves in those more traditional roles. And, and I walked out and one of the other women in the room, we just like shook our heads and laughed, you know, there's the whole mansplaining thing that happens from time to time. In that particular meeting, someone did, I started, I'll tell you one story. I started to ask a question of whoever was presenting. And in the middle of my question, a male colleague said, what Anne means to say, no kidding. A row of women that were sitting together, we just laughed. We just laughed because we all reckoned it was so it was so outrageous. It was funny. Good guy, didn't mean to, was excited to weigh in, but anyway, still happens, but we can we can look at it, we can talk with colleagues about it, we can observe it and and move forward and learn and teach. True story. <laughs> wow, I'm still kind of like searching for words to respond to that. It's a little cringy. Yeah. It's yeah. A little, wow. (laughs) Interestingly in situations like that, um, do you, do you feel it's appropriate to kind of take the moment to say, no, I can explain for myself. Thank you. You know, I think I probably said I got it or something like that, (laughs) but I I do, you know, it's that classic thing and I don't want to go back to feminism 101, but it's that classic thing, you know, women that are assertive and authoritative and um, sometimes are perceived as too aggressive and too assertive. It's that same thing. I've been reading about this since my feminist books in college, you know, it's that same dynamic. Women have to work harder, you know, and I think the same would be true for other groups. People of color have to work harder to be heard, to be, to be seen, to be respected. And and I'm not complaining because we, we work hard and we can, we can make it happen. We can do great things, but every now and then we slip back into a place where we kind of get into this cliche space and have to have to make some corrections, but yeah, I'm comfortable at this point in my career and my life to, to have a conversation. And if we hadn't all laughed so visibly, I probably would have said something to the person. <laughs> I think he got it. Yeah. Good. And I, th- I think one other thing to add about what you were just talking about feminism um, representative Williams is it's also, it, it's also when people say, Oh gosh, she's being so this or that, or that some of the things that you were talking about, it's also, it's also reflective on the person who feels that way. In other words, you know, I would say, oh gosh, so-and-so is really being whatever. But, but if I have confidence and if I care about having other voices heard, and if I care about making sure that things are equitable, if somebody does that, I don't, I'm not naturally going to say, gosh, you know, why is she being so pushy? You know, that's, so I think part of the equation here is yes, the way women might be viewed through that prism, but it's also the people that are viewing them through that prism. And if they don't have confidence and if they're narrow-minded, and if they think that men should be ruling the roost all the time, then they're going to react a certain way. And if you're confident, and if you think that everybody should have a voice, and you think that all opinions are important, not just yours, you might react differently. So I think it's a it's a double-edged sword there. I will say, we're all about the same age here, I'm guessing. But um, I don't think it's as true for the younger generations. I think they are uh, in a different place. I have not noticed or, or seen it in, in the younger generation. So that's the good news. We're just kind of still, we're evolving. Definitely. Yeah. I've even seen it in my own household and Eileen, I want you to weigh in here. So I don't want to, you know, take the focus away from your response for, for too long, but 
even in my own household, it's interesting because I've always considered myself to be pretty assertive, um, pretty goal oriented, you know, it's kind of stronger female role type. Um, and my husband is nothing but supportive of me from, you know, the moment I met him. But interestingly, just between the women in our house and the men in our house, I've seen this shift in the last three to four years where um, we're calling out things that they may not be, we meaning the women are calling out things that the men in our house may not be aware of that they're doing. And we're not afraid to do it. So there is definitely an energy that's out there now where there's the awareness of it and the normalizing of having the conversations, which um, I personally am pretty grateful for. So Aileen, let's hear from you. Thanks. Um, I was just thinking that like for, you know, I'm, I'm a social worker, I'm a therapist. So I get a certain amount of um, authority given to me within those relationships. So I'm very comfortable and confident kind of taking charge of a conversation when I'm working, you know, just like with your doctor, when you go to your doctor, you usually like elevate your doctor and their knowledge up and listen to them. And, And that's the benefit that I get with, you know, the licensed clinical social worker crown that I wear at at my job. But um, that said, when I'm in other environments, I I am, you know, acutely aware of my privilege and actually being, I'm, for those of you who are not, you know, you, you can't see me. I've got gray hair. I'm petite. I'm a mom. I kind of exude mom energy, I think a little bit. And I try to be really careful between like, I want to elevate other people. I want other voices, but I, I do have to step out. And especially as a candidate, like I have to step out sometimes and I have to be a little more assertive. I mean, Eileen and Anne, you both know me. I'm, I'm confident, but, but knowing kind of when Eileen get your ass in gear and like be assertive in this moment, or maybe it's okay to interrupt somebody in this um, setting when maybe otherwise you wouldn't do that. Um, so that's a challenge is I think the internalized sense of like my role in the world and my internalized sense of um, privilege, but also like wanting to always um, listen to other people. But, but if you're going to be a leader, sometimes you have to step out in front. And so I trying to, to make that balance work. Really great point uh, to to add there because that's that's key and it's it's a little bit about self awareness too. It's like how people are viewing you, but it's also, you know, um, what do I need to do to 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 make a difference there? And I'm glad that we were we were touching on upon feminism and advocating for women's issues. And both of you are leaders uh, in your community and in the state. So, kind of as we wrap things up here, I'd love to hear your guidance from both of you on how everyone can play an important role and advancing women's issues, whether they're an elected official or even if they're not part of a democratic organization or they're not a social worker who's well-known in the community, whatever the case may be, how can women do this? Because anybody can do it if they so choose. Um, Well, I'll jump in. You know, when I, I thought about this question and was thinking one of the things I'm most proud about actually is how I've, not only how I've raised my daughter, but how I've raised my son and, and I know that's, you know, specific to people who parent or people who get interaction. Um, and Anne and I, through politics, get a lot of interaction with young people. And I do think that um, young people are an opportunity to help make a better 
world. And, and we don't, obviously they don't need us to tell them <laughs> what to do, but, but as I parent my son talking about equity, talking about um, issues of consent um, about the, we listen to rap music together. You know, what are they saying in that song? How is that objectifying women? How would you feel if your body was talked about in that way? And so I think for me, like, and then actually to my children's horror, I often address their friends and did, especially when they were in high school about those issues as well. And about, again, like consent and objectification. And, you know, I'm not sure that the guys were getting it at home. So I wanted to make sure they heard it when they were in our house. <laughs> How about you, Anne? Well, you know, I think a couple of things come to mind. First of all, I just have to comment, Eileen, you and and both Eileen's have used the term complacency as well as Eileen R, you tied it into a comfort, a comfort level. And I think that is, I think right now, the biggest lesson I am taking away from my experience in Illinois government and politics is you can easily get to a place where you are comfortable, but that is not uh, too far from being complacent. And that means not just on issues, big sweeping issues like reproductive health care, but how you respond to dynamics in your own space, whether it's if you are very involved in your school or whether you're very involved in the legislature or in an organization like Personal Pack, if you just stay comfortable, you are not gonna move forward. And that means you have to be uncomfortable. And I would say in the General Assembly the last year or so has been a bit uncomfortable. Um, you have to take some risks. You can't always, and you won't always get it right. But I think women that are willing to do that in whatever space they are in will be heard. And you have to be okay with, with that uncomfortable feeling and it will pass. And in and, and the future, you never know what, what those uh, challenges can bring to you. I think personally in the community I've worked in, I've worked with so many women who have, have had power that they have probably don't recognize. I work a lot with neighborhood schools and some of my uh, strongest positions and um, the greatest things that I've done legislatively have stemmed from conversations with those CPS moms. They are, I'll tell you, that's a force to be reckoned with. And uh, those women and the moms and dads from CPS have really shaped my agenda, really educated me about the importance of schools. From there, I learn a lot about public safety, what keeps neighborhoods strong, uh, small business owners also inter interface with those same communities. So I think I, I probably will tell these people over, over time, but I think people need to recognize their own power to influence um, me, influence the organizations they work in, uh, influence other community members. And, and that's a, an important first step. I, I remember on Facebook, some woman was talking about an issue related to a school and I jotted her name down and meant to follow up with her. She had an opinion on a controversial issue at a school. And she said, ah, I don't know if the kids are going to listen to me. I'm just a middle-aged white woman. And I'm like, oh, what kind of message are you sending? And I wanted to call her and say, you want your, yeah, but you know, take that, own it and, and recognize the power you have in this conversation, whether you're middle-aged, whether you're a person of color, whether you're a white person, whether you're a man, whether you're a younger person, uh, recognize and claim that, um, that you have a voice to share. And that's, um, I think something that people, oh, you know, I'm just at the, on the LSC at my school. Oh, I'm just doing some work on the fundraiser, but you have a lot of impact on people. Uh, people are watching what you're doing. They're listening to what you say, probably more than you realize. That's such a great observation. Thank you. I, I love that. That's very encouraging. And um, obviously that applies to everybody, not men, women, everyone in the world, um, because um, we all can play a role 
in advancing these issues that are important, um, you know, to, whether it's an, an individual uh, group or special interest, you know, or, or not, we all can support and help advocate and normalize conversations and take opportunities to uh, not let the moment go um, and have some influence on it. So it's, I appreciate that. Thanks, Anne. I think about my own kids too, Eileen, and what to what to do. Uh, you know, how we've been parenting them and how we've been trying to encourage them to have voices. It's an interesting time for young women and young men in a lot of ways, particularly um, my young man, you know, he struggles sometimes with, well, where, where's my place in that feminist issue? I don't really, I, I can't authentically talk about that. That wouldn't be right. So, you know, figuring out a way where men can be supportive um, and behave like feminists, I think is is uh, also an important thing for us to consider these days because we're not going to be able to do this ourselves. That's that's pushing a boulder up a mountain. We need everybody pushing the boulder. Agreed. <laughs> that's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, I just want to express my gratitude, and uh, Rob, I know you share it mm-hmm. to both of you, Eileen and Anne. Thank you for being here today. Is there anything else that you'd like to say to our listeners on this topic before we close? Well, I, I wouldn't be remiss if I did not say that it is so important to vote. Um, even if I disagree with your politics, it is so important for your voice to be heard and for people to learn who's on the ballot all the way down to the bottom because there's some really, really important races like judges down at the bottom that deeply affect our lives. Um, and please, it's going to be the primary is going to be um, June 28th. And it's a different time of year. It's usually in March, but it's um, because of the census was late and the map making was late. It's June 28th. And I hope everybody in this who hears this podcast comes out to vote. And I'll just echo that. And just a reminder for listeners, anyone and everyone is welcome and in the government and political space in Illinois. You just have to decide that you want to be a part of it and uh, make it happen. And, And it's no longer what it used to be. There's no really much of the machine left. It's really about regular people getting involved and getting engaged. Tremendous insight. And we just can't thank both of you enough for your for all of it today. Thank you for weighing in on some really important issues and for bringing such great candor to the conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. And that will do it for another edition of Can You Hear Me? I'm Eileen Rochford, CEO of the Harbinger Group. And I'm Rob Johnson, president of Rob Johnson Communications. We thank you for listening. And remember, you can listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Thanks for listening.